please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This psalm is one of six psalms of confession that are in uh, our Psalter. Now, we've already considered one of these psalms, Psalm 32, a few weeks ago. And so today we're considering another psalm of confession. You'll notice that the subtitle that's present here for Psalm uh, 51 indicates the historical context of this psalm. This psalm was David's prayer of confession after he sinned against Bathsheba by breaking that seventh commandment, and as he sinned against Uriah, her husband, by breaking the sixth commandment. This, then, is David's prayer of confession after God sends Nathan to rebuke David for these gross sins. So, please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, when you look at our order of worship, 
you may wonder, you may have wondered at, at, at a time in the past, why do we do what we do in corporate worship? Why do we have all of these elements in our liturgy? Is there any reason for having all of these various liturgical elements? Do we do these things merely out of tradition because this is how Christians in the past have done things? We don't do this out of mere tradition. We, we are very intentional about what we do in our corporate gatherings together. We believe that what we do in worship on Sunday mornings is meant to set the tone for the rest of our week. We believe that the practices that we engage in in corporate worship are practices that we are called to habituate Monday through Saturday. Or to put it another way, when you think about piety, your piety before God as a fountain, the very top tier of that fountain is corporate worship, and that is meant to overflow into every part of our life. So if you've worshipped with us for any amount of time, you will know that every Sunday we gather and we hear God's law read to us and applied to us. We then are called to confess our sins in light of God's moral standard. And then we also hear God's gospel, a declaration of pardon. And we are called, in light of that declaration, to rest in Christ. We, are, we, we hear the law and the gospel. We are called to confess and rest. Confess our sins and rest in Christ. These, of course, are very ha important habits in the Christian life. These are habits that we aren't only to do on Sundays. But these are habits that we are called to do every day of the week. We are called to confess our sins and rest in Christ. As, as we consider Psalm 51 as a prayer of confession, a psalm of confession, my hope is that we would come away with a richer, fuller, more textured understanding of what it means to confess and rest. What does it mean to confess our sins and rest in Christ? These are really the two main themes that we see uh, here in this, this psalm of confession. So first, what, what does it mean to confess, to confess our sin? This is something that we do every Sunday. Why is this such an important habit of the Christian life? Well, notice what David says in verse 4. Uh, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, after reading this, you might be thinking to yourself, Wait a minute, David. No, you sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned in some sense against the kingdom of Israel as you let them down by not being the type of righteous king that you were called to be. Why, why are you saying against you and you only have I sinned and done, done what is evil in your sight? Well, of course David knows that he sinned against other humans. He did sin against Uriah. He did sin against Bathsheba. But what he's telling us here, what he's teaching us, is that all sin is ultimately sin committed against God and his supreme majesty. Now why is this the case? Well, God is the one who, who created the moral order that's written within the fabric of this universe. And so when we disregard God's law, we are disregarding God himself. His law is merely a reflection of his holy character. When we sin, we are essentially saying that the way God has told us to live is not wise. It's not beneficial. 
does not lead to flourishing, but rather we know a wiser path, a better path. In a, in, a, in a sense, we are standing over God. We are standing in judgment over God. When we sin, we are essentially misusing the gifts that God has given us. God has given each one of us gifts, gifts of creativity, energy, intellect, cognition. And we have been called to use these gifts in order to serve our neighbor and glorify him. Thus, when we sin, we are using these God-given gifts to tear down our neighbor and glorify ourselves. So all sin, though they may be sins committed against other persons, they're ultimately sins committed against God and his supreme majesty. And we are called to recognize, acknowledge, and confess this reality. We also are to confess the pervasiveness of our sin. You'll see in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, David uses three different terms here to refer to his sin. He refers to his sin as transgression, iniquity, and then sin. What this teaches us is that David recognizes and acknowledges the pervasiveness of his own sin. He knows that his sin doesn't merely lie or reside in the surface of his life or in his external actions, but rather his sin resides in the recesses of his heart. David knows that his sins that he needs to confess before God are not merely the sins of adultery and murder. When you read the narration of David's sins in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you'll you'll find that his, his sin actually began uh, with a look. He saw Bathsheba bathing on the top of the roof, and he lusted. He, he engaged in, in covetousness. Rather than confessing that sin, he stayed silent. He let that sin fester within him, and that sin sprouted and took root and, and gave forth to adultery, and adultery snowballed into murder. David recognizes the pervasiveness of his own sin, sin that resides in the head, the heart, and the hands. David goes on to to speak about the pervasiveness of this sin when he says, Behold, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Think for a moment about what David's saying here. David is saying at the very moment in which he was conceived, the very moment in which he became a human person, he was a sinner. Before David had the power of cognition or reason, he was naturally disposed to rebel against God and his moral order. Talk about pervasive. And this this reality is true of all of us, all of us who are in Adam. Our sin problem didn't originate the very first time we disobeyed our parents consciously. Our sin problem began in the womb. Now, where did this sinful nature come from? Well, our catechism, reflecting what Paul says in Romans 5, says that our our sinful nature comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Adam stood as our legal representative. 
His actions, his performance had consequences for the many. Just like oftentimes politicians, world leaders act and their decisions have ramifications for entire nations. Well, in a similar way, Adam's actions had consequences for the many. So when Adam sinned, sinned we all. Adam's sin resulted in guilt and corruption being imputed to all mankind. And therefore we inherit this sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. What this means uh, for us then is that everything that we do is tainted with sin. Even our best works, even as our best works as regenerate Christians are tainted and defiled with sin. You know, boys and girls, I've used this illustration before, but it's like you're playing outside in the mud and you come inside without cleaning off your shoes. What are you going to do? You're going to track mud everywhere. Your parents are going to know exactly where you went. You're going to leave a trace of mud with every footstep. And so it is with sinful human beings. Everything that we do, every thought we think, every word we speak, every action we commit is tainted with sin. This is pretty self-evident when you examine the intentions, dispositions, and attitudes of your heart whenever you engage, even in your most pure act. We have sinful natures. Thus we are called to confess not only that our sin is committed against God, but we are to confess the pervasiveness of this sin which we commit against God and His supreme majesty. Now, our natural disposition is to have x-ray-like vision when it comes to perceiving, recognizing uh, the pervasiveness of other people's sin. This is very easy for us, but we get quite uncomfortable when it comes to recognizing, owning, and confessing the pervasiveness of our own sin. This becomes even more self-evident when you think about how difficult it is to receive criticism from someone. When we receive criticism from other people, our first instinct is to defend ourselves. To defend our own righteousness. But how easy it is to become critical and judgmental of others. Not necessarily in word, but in thoughts. We're quick, quick to criticize. Now, of course, there's a time to confront others in their sin. Uh, Jesus acknowledges this. But Jesus says and reminds us of some very helpful, a very helpful principle in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, when he says that we first need to take the log out of our own eye, and then we will see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. There may be a time in which we do need to take the speck out of our brother's eye, but we first need to begin by confessing, acknowledging, and owning the log that is in our own eye. And so one of the reasons why we gather each Sunday and hear the law read to us and confess our sins in light of that law is we're seeking to habituate this practice of confessing the pervasiveness of our sin to God first. First. Before we even think about taking that speck out of our brother's eye. This is meant to be a habit that is to characterize our entire lives as Christians. And it begins with what we do here as a corporate body on the Lord's Day. Well, what do we do with this sin problem? How is our sin removed from our account? We also see in Psalm 51 that we are called to rest. So we're called to confess, 
but we're also called to rest. And we're called to rest in this promise that God is the one who removes our sin. Again, if you look at verse 1, this psalm begins with David calling out to his God, saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David here is appealing to God to show him mercy based on God's own character. David knows who God is. David knows the stories of Israel. David knows God's track record. David knows God's faithfulness that was displayed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David knows how God was revealed to Moses in the burning bush as the God who is or who will be uh, and who, who calls himself, I am who I am. David knows who God is. And he's appealing to God's gracious character and calling God to be merciful to him in his sin. And you'll see that David uses a number of, of verbs to, to refer to his uh, God removing his sin from his account. He, uh, in verse, the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, he calls God to blot out his, his sin. And this image is the image of, of wiping out ink or words from a book. You know, boys and girls, I bet you've all had that experience where you've done your homework and you realize you've been doing everything wrong and hopefully you've been writing in a pencil so that you can take that eraser out and vigorously erase all of that wrong work. This is the image that, that David wants us to have in mind. He's conceiving of his sin as being recorded in a ledger and he's asking God to erase all of his sin. From his ledger. Blot out my transgressions. And he also says, he asked God to wash him. And this refers to clothes being laundered. David conceives of himself as being dressed in dirty rags. Uh, dirty rags of unrighteousness. And he is, is asking God to dress him in pure vestments. To wash him. David also calls upon God to cleanse him. And this refers to this ritual cleansing whereby the priest would pronounce upon a sinner that he is clean and thus worthy to stand in God's holy presence. David desires, desires to be able to stand in God's holy presence with a clear conscience. Cleanse me, he says. It's striking that David, when he thinks about his sin, he conceives of sin as being uh, filthy. When he, he, he conceives of himself as being dirty in his sin in need of a washing. Now think of those times when you've been working outside or gone for a hike or you've exercised. You come to the house and before you eat, before you relax on your couch, before you, you go to bed, the first thing you want to do is take a shower. Because those things are not going to be enjoyable unless you're clean. This is how David feels in a moral sense. He feels dirty. He feels stained in his sin. And he needs God's cleansing grace to wash over him. Oftentimes, this is how we can feel. We can feel stained in our own transgressions in need of God's cleansing grace. Now, David here recognizes that he cannot remove his own sin. No, no matter how remorseful he is, no matter how earnest he is in his repentance, no matter how many tears he sheds over 
his sin, no matter, no matter how many prayers he recites, David cannot remove his own sin. This is a work that belongs to God alone. I love the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, when the hymnist says, Could my zeal no longer know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many tears you shed. Your tears do not atone for your sin. Thou must save and thou alone. David here is resting, trusting in God's mercy. He's throwing himself upon God's mercy. He's he's connecting himself to the parachute of God's grace, which is going to be revealed in David's greater son and descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, David later on speaks about these sacrifices and says that God ultimately uh, desires uh, a contrite spirit and not just outward uh, rituals. But these outward rituals were still important. Yes, God cared about the heart, but the outward sacrifices were still important at this time in redemptive history. And David knew that the reason why God could show mercy and grace to him was only because of these sacrifices that were performed with a contrite spirit. Why were these sacrifices so important for the Old Testament people of Israel? Well, these sacrifices pointed the people of Israel, pointed David to this this descendant, the seed of the woman who would one day come as the greater sacrifice, the greater priest, and the greater temple who would definitively forgive sins. Consequently, then, every time David smelled the aroma of burnt flesh and burnt animal hide uh, rising uh, before God as a pleasing aroma before him, David was reminded of his greater son and the sacrifice that he would perform on his behalf. So this psalm is is calling us to rest in this promise of the gospel that God is the one who removes our sin. Now this, of course, seems basic on one level. God is the one who removes our sin. But in practice, this can be quite difficult for us to rest in. Oftentimes, our default position is, yes, to rest in Christ and what we bring to the table. It may be our knowledge. We may be uh, someone who takes pride in in all that we know about the Bible, all that we know about theology. We may have a, a lot of the Bible memorized. We may have catechism question and answers memorized. And we take pride in that knowledge that we have. It might be our convictions on tertiary issues. We think that we have very orthodox, well-thought-out, biblical convictions, and we take pride in those convictions. It may be our zeal. We may have zeal for discipleship, zeal for evangelism, zeal to use our spiritual gifts, zeal for personal piety, praying in quiet times, and, and we treasure the zeal that we put forth into our Christian life. It may be our goodwill, good intentions, our character. We may be someone who really believes in deeds, not creeds, We just want to be someone who fulfills the great commandment. We love God and love our neighbor. And so when we come back to that question, are my sins forgiven? In theory, yes, we might respond and say, our sins are forgiven in Christ alone. But in practice, it's very easy for us to rest in Christ plus my knowledge, conviction, zeal, and goodwill. 
when it comes to how my relationship is being maintained, how I'm staying in God's good graces, it's very easy to slip into this state of mind where we're resting in Christ and what I'm bringing to the table, my participation in this covenantal relationship. We long to look to something tangible to locate our assurance before God. We long to look for something tangible to assure ourselves that we are staying in God's good graces. Things such as our knowledge, our zeal, our love. But beloved, this is exactly why our Lord has given us sacraments. Physical, tangible signs and seals to assure us that we will stay in God's good graces. These are physical, tangible signs and seals to assure us of intangible spiritual realities. How do I know that, that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago as he died on a cross has any bearing for me and my relationship to the divine being? How do I know that I belong body and soul, life and in death to the humanity of Jesus Christ? These things can oftentimes feel out of touch, intangible. And it's in these moments that we're called to turn to bread and wine and be assured that surely as we can taste, touch, and see simple bread and wine, so surely we can know that we truly belong, body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have to look no farther than the bread and wine that we will be partaking of in a few moments to be assured in a tangible way that we really do belong to God through Christ our Lord. So we are called the rest. We are called the rest in this promise that God is the one who removes our sin. We also here are called to rest in this promise that God is the one who renews us as sinners into his own image. So if you look with me at verse 10, uh, David continues and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word that David uses for create is a word that denotes God's power, powerful work whereby he creates something out of nothing, whereby he creates order out of chaos. It's the same word that was used in Genesis 1.1 when we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Consequently, then, we can be assured that the same God who created all things and continues to sustain all things by the word of his power is the same God who has created new life within you and promises to continue to sustain and strengthen that new life that resides within you. This is what David's saying. David's resting in this promise, create me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. This, this job of sanctification, this job of inward renewal is a job that belongs to God. God is the one who renews us. And we see that this renewal consists of a host of things. So for instance, we see that this renewal consists of a restoration of joy. So in verse 12, David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This renewal consists of a desire to instruct and help others. In verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. This renewal consists of praise. In verse 15, David says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. It also consists of a desire for the well-being of the church. 
Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. So when God renews us, he renews us according to these parameters. We can be confident that God is at work in this way in all of us who profess faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now why is this comforting for us? We all have been there where we grow discouraged. It might be uh, with our own life. It might be with a loved one, a child, a, a spouse, a, a friend, a church member, a family member, where we, we seem to have a stall or we've gone backwards, as it were. And we, we are wrestling with why, why has God allowed and permitted these temptations, these struggles, the, these doubts to enter my life? What is God up to? It's in those moments that we are called to rest in this promise that God is a God who not only removes our sin, but he's a God who renews sinners. We rest in, in, in the promise that we hear from the Apostle Paul when he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So congregation, rest in that. Rest in that promise that God is the one who renews sinners after his own image. Now, I've mentioned before that when we read the Psalms, we should read the Psalms as first and foremost being Psalms of Christ. These are, are Psalms or prayers that Christ prays. And only secondarily should we see them as our Psalms. So they're first about Christ, secondarily about us. They're first Psalms for Christ, secondarily Psalms for us. So when we read Psalm 51, it's an interesting question to ask. Did, did Christ ever pray this Psalm? Did Christ ever take this psalm upon his lips? There are some psalms he did directly. Think of Psalm 22. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did did Christ ever pray Psalm 51? Well, he he couldn't have prayed it directly because we know that Christ was sinless. The author of Hebrews says that Christ was like us in every way in his humanity, sin accepted. So Christ couldn't have, have prayed this directly. However, we need to remember that Christ is our priest. And as our priest, uh, there's two main aspects to this priesthood. One part of his priesthood is his sacrifice on the cross. The second half of his priesthood is his ongoing intercession on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Now, what does it mean that Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you? What does that mean? Well, in part, that means that Christ is praying for you. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about The fact that Christ knows your weaknesses, your doubts, your temptations, your sins better than you do. And he lives at the right hand of the Father to pray for you. Not only that, we know that his prayers are always answered because they perfectly conform to the divine will. Have you ever thought about that? Christ prays for you. What sorts of things does Christ pray for on behalf of the church? Well, the types of things that we we hear in Psalm 51. Think about reading Psalm 51 as a prayer for Christ, a a prayer by Christ on behalf for his church. Have mercy on them, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out their transgressions. Wash them thoroughly from their iniquity and cleanse them from their sin. 
For I know their transgressions. In fact, I know them better than they know them because I bore your wrath for all of their sin. Cast them not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from them because I died to purchase the Spirit for them. It's very comforting to read Psalm 51 as a prayer that Christ prays for his church right now at the right hand of his Father. One reason why we can have confidence that our faith will not fail, beloved, is because we have a faithful intercessor and mediator who prays these types of things for the church, for you individually. So congregation of Christ, this morning we are called to confess, rest, and know that Christ prays for you. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for the comfort that we can glean from your inspired and holy word. We thank you this morning how, how you call us to be a people marked by uh, confessing our sins. We're reminded of what Martin Luther said when he said uh, a whole, our whole life is to be a life of repentance. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people who habituate this practice. We also be, pray that we'd be a people who rest. Rest not in ourselves, rest not in our piety, or our virtue, but we'd be a people who solely rest in who you are for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would think often about the fact that you have not left us destitute, but we have a mediator and intercessor who lives at your right hand, who uh, 